All right, we'll open up to Micah, if you will. Micah is toward the end of the Old Testament, about halfway through the Minor Prophets. <clears throat> if you find Jonah, Micah is the very next book after Jonah. If you find Nahum, Micah is the very next book before Nahum. Micah is, uh, over the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years even, Micah has become one of my favorite books in the Bible. I've studied it quite a bit uh, in another church that I was in, uh, preached through Micah before, just a really, really good book. Uh, and that's, I'm excited about preaching through it tonight as well. Um, if you remember, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but if you remember, the prophets in the Bible serve uh, kind of as like commentators on the history of Israel. Uh, they're the spokesmen for God. Remember a... a between a prophet and a priest, adjust the mic. What needs to be adjusted? Or I could get closer to either one, right? Is that is that better? Um. Uh. So they say, so yeah. So the prophets are uh, kind of like commentators on the history of Israel, right? So the prophets and priests. The priests were people who stood as representatives for the people and spoke to God on behalf of the people. The prophets were the opposite. They were people who uh, served as representatives for God. They spoke to the people on behalf of God. God would, would give them a message, and then they would deliver it to the people. They were kind of like God's uh, spokespeople. Um, and and so, uh, so God would speak to them, and God would, God would address the people's behavior, address the people's uh, actions, address the people's sin, all of these things through the prophets. And so when we read the prophets in the Old Testament, they serve kind of like commentaries on Israel's history. They give us a, a God's eye uh, perspective, God's eye view of what's happening in the life of, of his people and the, and, and the rest of the world as well, but especially um, his people. And so if you remember uh, the, the history of Israel, just, just very briefly, uh, remember King David, King Saul was the first king and, and then King David. And King David uh, united all the tribes of Israel into the, a nation, into a, into a national uh, political body. And David served as the king, and he was a good king, and the, nation, the, the tribe stayed united under his leadership. And then when David died, uh, his son Solomon became king. And Solomon was a wise king and a mostly good king. Toward the end of his life, he turned away from God in some ways. Um, but he was mainly a good king, and the nation stayed together under Solomon's rule. The tribes all stayed united under him as their king. And then when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. Uh, he, he, he ascended to the throne whenever Solomon died. And Rehoboam was not as wise as his father Solomon. And so because of some of the decisions that Rehoboam made and some of the advisors that he listened to, the nation broke apart under Rehoboam's rule. The tribes didn't stay united. They rebelled against him, and they broke away. And so starting, starting there with Rehoboam, um, you, you have a divided kingdom. And so there's a northern kingdom, which is known as Israel, and it's the ten tribes in the north. And then you had the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah, uh, and, and it had the, the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And so now throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's, there's the, these kind of um, dual histories or dual, um, dual timelines uh, with the, 
the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And there's some times where they're doing things together and they're allies in certain ways, and there are other times where they're enemies to one another and, and fighting against each other and, and things like that. And so when you're reading the prophets, if you know that history, uh, most of the prophets are addressing one or another of the kingdoms, either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. And if you know which, uh, which kingdom the prophet is addressing and you kind of know what's going on during that point in history, it's helpful to understand what the prophet's talking about and what the prophet's doing. And so Micah lived toward the end of the, the, the lifespan of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, was conquered by the Assyrians in around 722 BC. And then, and so Micah lives around the same time that, that Isaiah lived. And they're both writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. Look at Micah chapter one, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, okay, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So he's writing to Judah, the southern kingdom, and he's writing about Samaria and Jerusalem. And so Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. So Micah is writing to the southern kingdom about both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Okay, and so early on, he's writing about Israel and how Israel has turned away from God, and then God's judgment is going to come on them. On them, and, and he says, even tells the, the the southern kingdom, Judah, even to look to Israel, look at look at their mistakes, don't follow in their mistakes, don't follow in 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 their path, but but stay close to the Lord. Um, these kind of things. And Micah's writing toward the toward the end of of the southern kingdom, and so he's writing during a time where the the southern kingdom has turned away from God. So both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, uh, both turned away from God, which is why they were both conquered. Uh, the northern kingdom turned away from God first, and in a, maybe in a, in a worse way, a more extensive way in, in, in some ways. The southern kingdom, it took a little bit longer. They stayed, uh, they stayed more faithful, or I guess we, maybe we could say they stayed less unfaithful for, for longer, but eventually they fell as well, Okay. And so this is who, uh, who Micah is writing to. And we could, we could summarize the book of Micah in, in, in two themes. Okay, there are two themes in the book of Micah. The first theme is God is coming in judgment. The second theme is God is coming in salvation. God is coming in judgment and God is coming in salvation. But the way, the way that the book is structured, there, there are three cycles in the book of Micah, chapters one and two and then chapters three, four, and five, and then chapters six and seven, three different cycles. So, so these might've been three different announcements or, or sermons, if you will, that Micah proclaimed to the people, and then they were collected together in, in, the, in the book with Micah's name on it, because they all came from him, um, or, or we don't know, but there are three different cycles. So in the first cycle, you have judgment and salvation. In the second cycle, chapters three, four, and five, you have judgment and salvation, and in the third cycle, uh, chapter six and seven, you have judgment and salvation. So there, there are these cycles, okay? But there are more than cycles. It might be better to think of it instead of cycles, you know, just like circles, it might be better to think of it as, uh, as um, spirals, okay? A circle, you know, just goes around. A spiral goes up or down, right? It's a circle that goes up or down. And to make it even a little bit more complicated, we might think of it as like a double cycle, 
or like a, like a double helix, like a, if, you, if you're familiar with like the model of a DNA molecule or something like that, right? If you take, imagine taking a ladder, like a, a, an aluminum ladder, and then twisting it, okay? And so you've got these kind of two cycles that are connected to each other. And so what's happening in the book of Micah over these three different, uh, three different cycles or three different spirals, the, the judgment spiral is spiraling down, but the salvation spiral is spiraling up. And so as we progress through the three cycles, the sin and the judgment gets worse, at least gets more extensive, we're told more about it, but the salvation cycle gets better, or the good news gets better, or we, we hear more of the good news, or see how God's going to do it, okay? And so I want us to, to look tonight at these three cycles. Uh, so the three points, I guess, would just be cycle one, cycle two, cycle three, but within each cycle, we're going to look at the two themes, judgment and salvation, Okay, and we're going to be turning a lot in the book of Micah. Uh, luckily, the book of Micah is short. It's only seven chapters, so hopefully you can uh, keep up and not have to, not have to uh, flip around that much. There's not that many pages. Uh, but we do want to look at all three of these cycles. So the first cycle, cycle one, is, is chapters one and two. And so first we see judgment. So look at Micah chapter one. Look at verse two. He says, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And so God's calling the nations to pay attention, all the, all the nations, all the peoples to pay attention because he's coming uh, it, to, to bear witness against them. He's coming in judgment against them. He goes on in verses three and four. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Often in the, in the prophets, when uh, this phrase, the high places, is mentioned, it's, it's, it's uh, oftentimes referencing like um, altars or uh, temples that have been built to false gods or false idols. Even within, the, within Israel, in, in the north and in, in Judah and the south even, uh, they had brought in these other gods and these other idols uh, from the nations around them that, that they were beginning to worship alongside the Lord. And they would have temples and altars set up to these other gods. And so he's coming down. He's going to tread on the high places of the earth. Verse 4, the mountains will melt under him. All the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. This is describing what God's wrath is going to look like, what God's judgment is going to look like when it comes. Okay? It's so broad. I was thinking of, of that quote that, uh, that we heard this morning about how the sun is so bright, it's so far away, 92 million miles or whatever it is away, and yet it will burn your eyes and imagine the God who created it. Can we stand in his presence any easier than we can look at the sun, right? It, it, it has this kind of idea here with God coming in judgment, God coming in, in his wrath. It says the, the hills are going to melt, Right? The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be spilt, split like wax before fire. Water poured down a steep place. This is God's judgment, God's wrath that's going to come. And, and, and as, the, as Micah's kind of preaching this, and the people of Judah are hearing it, they, they might be thinking uh, in, a, in a wrong way, kind of a prideful way, they might be thinking, good, God's going to come, right? Because remember, he's called the nations to account. He, he, he calls the nations to come and bear witness to him. And so perhaps they're thinking, yes, God's finally going to come and judge all these pagan heathen Nathans, nations around us. It's about time, God. What have you been waiting for? Why, why are you taking so long? But look at what he says. Look at why he's coming. Look at verse 5. 
All this is for the rebellion of Jacob or Israel and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria is the capital of Jacob or of Israel. What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the capital of of Judah. And so he's saying, yes, God's going to come, but he's coming because of the rebellion of his own people. He's calling the nations to be a witness, yes, but what are they going to witness? They're going to witness God's judgment on his people because they have rebelled against him. In verse 7, he says, all of her idols will be smashed, all of her earnings will be burned with fire, and all of her images I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. So again, God's bringing judgment, but he's bringing judgment on his own people because they've rebelled against him because of their idolatry. And then look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it's in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance, this is a pretty bad indictment on, on the Lord's people, right? It says that they lay in bed at night and dream up ways to take advantage of people and to rob people and to take people's land from them, and then they wake up the next morning and they get up and they go do it. That's pretty bad. It reminds me, we've been studying Romans in Sunday school, it reminds me in chapter one of Romans, it says uh, one of the ways that Paul describes the, the people there in their sin is inventors of evil. Here, Micah says, you guys are so bad. You've rebelled against the Lord. You're worshiping these idols. You're not even following him. You're not even worshiping him. It's gotten so bad that you even go to bed at night and dream up new ways to be evil and then wake up the next morning and go do it. And because of this, God's coming in judgment. God's coming in, in wrath. Okay? And we might, we might look back and say, yeah, this is a pretty bad situation. It sounds like Micah's... Uh, describing a, a pretty bad world here, but it really doesn't seem that different from our world today, right? Rebellion against God, idolatry, people being uh, being unjust with their with their power and with their wealth, and taking things from people, and gathering up all the all the land, taking land from people. And Micah said that God's going to come in judgment. He's he, he, he's not watching this indifferently from, from heaven, from his throne, but he's going to come and do something about it. He's going to come and make it, make it right. Okay? At the end of chapter 2, we see a very brief verse 12 of the salvation that's going to come, though. God's going to come in judgment. But look at, look at chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king comes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Two little verses, right? This is what I was meaning before about the salvation getting better as we go, right? At this first cycle, we only get two little verses about salvation, and we don't get a lot of details. He tells us that God, God tells us he's going to gather his people, right? And he calls them a remnant. Throughout the Old Testament, this idea of a remnant is, 
is, uh, is prominent. It comes up all the time. And where, where God has a large people, right, the, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, these people that are, that are his people, that are descendants of Abraham, uh, and, and, and it's a large nation, but there's a remnant of them, a smaller number, that are true followers of the Lord. And, and yes, God's going to bring judgment, but God's just and he's right in his judgment. And he's going to bring judgment against his people even when they rebel and turn away from him. But he's also going to bring salvation for the remnant that are remaining faithful. The remnant that are following him. The remnant that are worshiping him and not idols. And look what it says about them. He says he's going to assemble them, gather the remnant, put them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the midst of pasture. Verse 13 says... Uh, so their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. Now, Micah doesn't tell us right here how this is going to happen. We're going to find out as we go through the book. He doesn't tell us how it's going to happen, but he says God's going to gather his people. He's going to be their head and he's going to have a king ruling over them. And that's good, right? That's good news. The judgment is, is bad news in the bad, but there's also good news. There's also Salvation in, in the judgment. The second cycle, the second announcement that Micah makes is in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And here, just like in the first cycle, we see judgment and then we see salvation. And in, in, in the judgment we see is, in this cycle, is almost utter, complete destruction. So look at chapter 4. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 12 in chapter 4. He says, chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his purpose. He's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. He's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor, right? Like this, uh, like this, um, harvest that's come about and he's going to take them and separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He's going to separate the grain from the, from the shaft. Separate them into the remnant and the non-remnant. This utter, complete separation, utter, complete destruction. We see salvation in this cycle also, though. We see, uh, before we do that, though, I got ahead of myself. Uh, The reason he's going to judge them in in this cycle, he gives a little bit more detail. In the past cycle, he said that he was going to judge them because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, because because of their their injustice, how they were treating one another. In this cycle, he he goes a little bit further. He says in chapter chapter 3, um, here now, he says, verse 1 through 4, he says, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, chop them up, as for the pot and as meat in the kettle? 
Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. So the first reason in this cycle that God's going to send judgment is because the, ruler of the, the rulers of Israel, the leaders of, of the nation, the leaders of his people are not protecting the people. They're not looking out for the people. They're looking out for themselves instead. They're using the people, right? You get this, this, uh, this really horrid imagery of eating the people, eating their flesh and ripping their skin off and like meat in the pot. But and they're not literally cannibalisms that are literally happening in, at this time. What, what this is describing is the leaders using the people for their own benefit, using the people for their own, uh, for their own wealth, for their own power, for, for what they can get out of them. The leaders are supposed to be servants of the people, right? The king is supposed to be a good king. The king is supposed to be a shepherd of his people, and, and, and yet these are not doing that, okay? Another reason, look at, uh, look at verse um, uh, 9. He has, he has more to say. Chapter 3, verse 9, he has more to say about these leaders. He says, now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that's straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. And so you have these leaders that are, these rulers and leaders of the, of the people that are, that are not treating them the way that they ought to. They're not doing what's right and what's just. They're taking bribes. They're not looking out for the people. They're looking out for themselves at the expense of the people. Okay? Another reason, look, at, uh, look back at verse 5. Verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, right? Remember before we we're talking about the prophets are supposed to be a mouthpiece for God, speaking for God to the people, right? Delivering the message of God to the people. And yet here the prophets are leading the people astray. They're false prophets. They're unfaithful prophets. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy. This is another picture of bribery, right? If I give the prophet some food, if I, if I provide for the prophet and, and, and give him something to eat, take care of him, then he prophesies peace, right? He, he, he says something good about what I want him to, to prophesy about. But if I don't have anything to give him, then he prophesies against me. He prophesies against what I want to, to happen. He goes on, verse 6. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will get, go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. Part of God's judgment here is that he's going to stop speaking to the prophets. He's going to stop speaking to the people. The prophets aren't delivering his message the way they're supposed to. They're not doing it faithfully, truthfully, so God's going to stop speaking to the prophets. A third thing he says, back to verse 11. In verse 11, it says, again, here, her prophets divine for money. They lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Again, the prophets are taking, taking bribes. But also look, at, look uh, in, the, in the middle of the first part of verse 11, her priests instruct for a price. And so even the priests are taking bribes. So the, the, the three offices that God put in place for his people to care for them, to provide for them, the prophets, the priests, and the kings are all being unfaithful to the Lord. They're all leading the people astray. The rulers are taking advantage of the people. The prophets are taking bribes from the people and saying whatever the people want them to say so that they'll get the better bribes. And the priests are taking bribes from the people. Okay? 
And so the result of that, this utter and complete destruction, we see in uh, chapter 3, verse 12. I said chapter 4, verse 12 before, but that was the wrong reference. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of this, because of how the rulers and the prophets and the priests are acting, therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will, come, will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Complete, utter, total destruction. Plowed as a field, right? Uh become a heap of ruins. And then the mountain of the temple will become a high places of the forest. Again, this same kind of idea of God's going to stop talking to the prophets, the high places of the Lord, the mountain of the temple where God resides with his people, God resides over his people. He's going to, he, he's going to stop communicating to his people and he's going to break this relationship with his people. It's part of, part of his judgment. But there's also salvation in this cycle. There's salvation in this cycle too. And we can, we can see it in, in a few places. We're only going to look at a few of them. Look at chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. It says, And it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. So the judgment's going to be that the mountain, is, the mountain of the Lord is going to be done away with, right? But salvation is... But eventually it's going to be rebuilt. This relationship with God, this, this uh, communication with God, this interaction with God is going to be reestablished. I will raise above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his path. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Before the prophets were going to be silenced, now the prophets are going to speak truthfully. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither again will, there be, uh, will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his own fig tree. No one uh, to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord the host has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his own God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. There's a remnant in the people of God who are walking in his name. Even though the, these others walk in the names of other gods and worship other gods and idols, we're going to walk in the name of the Lord. And that wasn't easy for them. There were consequences for that. There were, there were problems that they faced for that, right? Again, that sounds a lot like our own day to day. So in the second cycle, we see salvation here that God's rule is going to be established. The second thing we, say, we see is that God's kingdom is going to be established. Look at, look at verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9. <clears throat> now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let her eyes gloat over Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose. 
for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, and that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may uh, devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God's going to establish his rule. God's going to establish his kingdom. And peoples from all nations are going to come to it, and those who refuse to worship the Lord are going to be tread down. The third thing we see is that God's going to establish his king. Okay, in the second cycle, the salvation part of the second cycle, God's going to establish his rule, God's going to establish his kingdom, and then God's going to establish his king. And this is a famous passage from Micah that you've probably heard before. We read it a lot during, uh, during Christmas time, Advent time, leading up to Christmas. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So before, at the, at, the, at the first cycle, we saw salvation that God was going to establish his remnant, but we didn't know how. Now we see how he's going to do it, or at least partially how he's going to do it. He's going to establish his rule, he's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to establish his king to rule over his people. And this king is going to be our peace. But there's a third cycle. A third cycle comes in chapter 6 and 7, and we, again, we see God's judgment falling on on the people, the nations, and his own people. And we see his salvation maybe most clearly of all in chapter 7. But first, let's look at, look at chapter 6. Look at verse 13. If we're thinking about judgment in this cycle, we might think about people getting what they deserve, people getting their just rewards, people getting kind of what's coming to them. Almost kind of the same concept we see in the New Testament as God kind of letting people letting people go and letting people receive the consequences of their sin, letting people sin play out to its, uh, to its I will make illusions. So look at verse 13, chapter 6, verse 13. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sin. There's going to come sicknesses. There's, they're, they're going to be struck down. In verses 14 through the first part of chapter 7, he says, You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but you will not anoint yourself with oil and the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision. And you will bear the reproach of my people. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. God's saying, you think that you're getting ahead right now? You think that, that, that you're gaining something in, your, in, in this rebellion, in this idolatry, in this simple lifestyle? He says, it's going to all come to nothing. It's going to all come to nothing. You're not going to be satisfied he says, you're, it's, it's, it's as if you're planting a vineyard, but you're not going to eat the grapes. It's as if you're planting a, 
uh, an olive orchard, but you're not going to see the oil. He says, all of your striving, all of your working, all of what you think is, uh, is, is um, clever and, 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 and getting yourself ahead, you're not going to get the results of that. You're not going to enjoy the fruits of your labor, of your unjust gain. You're not going to enjoy that because you're going to be judged first. And then finally he says, or two more things, in, in, in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, the godly person has perished from the land, and there's no upright person among men. All of them lie and wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with the net. God's, God's not only not going to give them the, the fruit of their unjust works, but he's also going to remove the influence of godly people in that them. Even, even throughout the history of Israel, there were some that were still faithful and still following the Lord. And the whole nation benefited from those people in some ways. Their influence was, was good for the whole nation in some ways. And yet God says, I'm going to remove that. And so you're going to get exactly what you deserve. You're going to get exactly what your works and what your lifestyle uh, brings to you. I'm going to re- remove that influence. And then finally, the, the, the last part of this judgment here is in verses three, and, 3 to 6. He says, concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contentiously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. And so the, the, the final step of this judgment, or the final way we see this judgment, is that even the relationships between all these wicked people is, are, are going to be destroyed. You're, they're not going to be able to trust anyone. It's going to be a miserable situation. And again, this is the end of their sin. This is the end of our sin. Sin, sin produces misery and uh, heartache and difficulty. And God says this is going to be part of his judgment, is get, letting people get the just rewards of their sin. He says, I forget which verse it was in, but he used the phrase, give them up, right? God's going to remove his restraining grace from people and give them up to their own sin. And and I want to look at two places uh, real quick uh, of why this is uh, in this cycle. Look back at at chapter 6, the the first few verses. He says, hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, canceled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and from uh, Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so God's reviewing some of their history and reminding them of how good he's been to them, and yet they've turned away from him. It's not just that their sin is immoral. It's not just that their sin is, is wrong. It's not just that their sin is unjust toward other people. And I keep saying their sin, but I could just as easily say our sin. 
It's not only that, it, it is those things. Sin is unjust and immoral and those kind of things. But what makes sin so bad is that it's personal against a good, kind, righteous, loving, gracious, merciful God. I think I've told this story before, but when I was living in Oklahoma City, uh, we had this friend that, that, that started coming by the, by the church a lot, and he was kind of a mess in a lot of ways, but he was a good guy, a real young guy. He had ended up there in Oklahoma City. He was from Georgia, but followed some girl there and then on a bus, and then she left him or whatever, and he didn't have contact with her anymore, so he was just kind of there. And we helped him do a lot of things. We helped him get a bike, so we helped him get a job first, helped him find a place to live, I guess, first, then helped him get a job, then helped him get a bike so that he could get to and from work and all, helped him with his resume, all these kind of things. He wasn't a believer, and he was telling us one day we took him out to lunch. There were three of us pastors that took him out to lunch, and we were coming back, and he was talking about hell. And he was saying, I just can't believe that a loving God would send somebody to hell. And we were trying to talk to him about that and try to help him understand that. And, and one of the things that we told him was ending of reason that hell seems so wrong to you is because you have a wrong understanding of sin, right? And, and we gave the example, if, if you were to murder somebody, that would be really bad right? And he said, yeah, that'd be bad. And we said, but it would be even worse if you murdered one of us because we just bought you lunch. We're, you don't know it, but we're about to go surprise you and buy you a bike so you can get to and from work. We've helped you get a job. We've helped you with your resume. We've helped, we've helped you get clothes. We've done all this good stuff for you. And then if you were to come murder one of us, that would be even worse than if you murdered a stranger or someone you were mad at because of that relationship you have, right? And that's how sin is against God. It's not just that, that, that we do things that are wrong, it's that we do things that are wrong against a good, loving, kind, holy Father who has been so good to us. And that's, that's what God's pointing out here in chapter 6. I led you out of Egypt, right? I'm the one who, uh, who sent Balaam uh, to, to prophesy to you. I'm the one who ransomed you from the house of slavery in Egypt. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? So that's one reason that God's sending this judgment is because the people have, have rebelled against him, but it's a, it's a personal turning against him. And then a second reason is because it's not like, it's not like the people are just kind of left there on their own and, and they're just trying to, trying to figure this out. God has told them exactly what he wants from them, exactly what he expects from them, and it's not too hard. And yet the people haven't lived up to it. Another very famous passage in Micah that you may be familiar with is in chapter 6, starting in verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God's not asking them to do, do something above and beyond. They're not asking them to sacrifice their firstborn son, right? Not asking them to do something out of the ordinary, out of the extreme. He's asking them, walk humbly with me. Love justice. Love kindness. And, and yet the people haven't done that. They've rebelled against that. They've turned away from that. And so judgment is coming. Rightfully so. But in this cycle, this third cycle, we also see the... The, the, the biggest and the greatest explanation of the salvation passage. Look at, uh, or the salvation theme. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. 
But as for me, this is someone speaking as a, a response from the, from the remnant, a response from the people that, that are worshiping God. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. Well, that seems odd because God just said he's going to come and judge them, right? But I'm going to wait expectantly, watch expectantly for God to come. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. It might look like uh, God is not protecting me. It might look like God's not providing me. It might, it might look like God's not keeping his promises. But I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to wait for him. I'm going to watch for him, expectantly, knowing that God's going to do what he said he was going to do. In verse 9, he said, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. That's a, that's a picture of repentance, right? I'm confessing that I am wrong, and I'm going to bear the indignation of the Lord. I'm going to bear the judgment of the Lord. I'm going to bear the anger of the Lord, knowing that I have sinned against him, knowing that it's rightfully, it rightfully falls on me, okay? But listen to the next part of chapter nine, uh, verse 9. And this is where we go back to the second cycle where God says he's going to establish his king and his king is going to be our peace. Look at verse, verse 9, the second half. Well, until with the beginning of verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause or until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. Until he pleads my case. The, 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 the writer here is expecting God, the one that's going to come in judgment, is expecting God not, not to, to bear witness against him, but to bear witness for him. Right? He's going to plead my case. And it says he's going to execute judgment for me. We would expect it to say, or, or we, we would expect that it should say, until he executes judgment against me. Right? If I'm guilty, then judgment is executed against me. And yet Micah doesn't say that. He says God's going to come and execute judgment for me, on behalf of me. We see the gospel here, right? God's executing justice, but he's executing justice for me. And the only way he can do that, we read in the New Testament and we learn in the other parts of the Bible, the only way that he can execute justice for me is when he executes justice against his son when he executes justice against our Redeemer, the Lord, who becomes our peace. He goes on, he says, uh, he will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. Judgment's coming. And judgment's coming rightfully so against sin, against rebellion, against idolatry, against injustice, against bribery, against turning the, the Lord's people against him, personal affronts to God himself. Judgment's coming, rightfully so. But salvation is also coming. And on this side of Micah, salvation has already come. And the fullness of salvation will come when the Lord returns to me, when he executes judgment for me, not against me, when he vindicates me and I see righteousness. I want to end by, by reading this, these last few verses of, of Micah. They'll serve as a, as a benediction for us tonight, starting in verse 18. 
Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Amen. We're dismissed.